OK, let's get started. We're talking about fiber optics today, which is a little different than what we've been talking about up until now, and that uh, really there are a few properties that we're going to want to understand about fibers, acceptance angle, numerical aperture, um, a little bit about attenuation. But for the most part, these are devices that we sort of plug in, and we'll talk more about um, some of the applications and not go into maybe as much theory as we have for other devices. So the idea behind fiber optics is that glass fibers can guide light. And the idea is not new. It's over 100 and almost 150 years old. So in 1870, there was the first experimental demonstration of this principle, guiding light. You can do this at home. Take a bucket, shine light into it, poke a hole. The water flow is laminar. So if it's nice and smooth, you can get that light guided along the flow of the water, assuming a few, uh, a few constraints are met that we'll talk about involving the angle of the bending and, and such. Um, it wasn't long after that 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 principle was extended to glass rods and uh, light pipes were made. And then later, in the uh, mid-1900s, this method was used, or the value of this method was seen, for example, in medical imaging. Um, you could take a glass fiber that was very thin and maybe a meter or so long, and any light that essentially shined in here would come out there. So if you took a bundle of these and you ordered them so that they maintained their order from one end to the other, then any image that was projected onto the bottom of the fibers would be visible at the top of the fibers. And these could be put in a little bundle. The bundle was flexible. You could, for example, stick it down somebody's throat and see what was going on in their stomach. And that was the use for optical fibers for many years until really the late 70s. And today, what are optical fibers used primarily for? Data transmission. Data transmission. So, What's, anyone have any idea of the big difference between medical imaging and data transmission is? It's the length. Long, yeah. it's, it's entirely the length. And if you have a one meter long fiber, the loss in the fiber is not so important. But if your fiber is 100 kilometers long, then the amount of loss becomes much more important. Okay, so it was an improvement in the manufacturing that led to uh, lower losses that allows them to be used today for telecommunications. So here's a little picture of a fiber. Um, we'll talk about the details of what go into this fiber a little bit later, but a fiber is just one example of modern methods for guiding light. The other is integrated optics, which means, so a fiber is a usually cylindrical uh, structure, and then you can also have planar structures that are patterned onto, uh, basically onto silicon wafers or or substrates in the same way that uh, microchips are manufactured. So you can integrate an entire optical experiment or an entire optical assembly inside a little chip by guiding the light through waveguides that are embedded in the, in the substrate. So this is an example of, here's a photodiode, and here's a modulator, and electrical signals come in here and they modulate the, the strength of the light that then couple into this fiber. And that entire thing is on a chip. You can solder it into for example, a computer, and then 
have an optical connection coming out that goes to whether that be your stereo or your internet connection or um, some router somewhere. So the principle under which this works can be understood very well using the ray picture of light. There's also an, ex uh, an explanation for what's going on using the wave picture, uh, which we won't cover. Um, it, the ray picture is good enough to explain most of what we want to explain. There will be a few equations that I show later on that have a little bit of a discrepancy between the uh, correct values derived from the wave equation and the approximate values derived using this ray picture. So I'll point those out when we get to them. But we can think of light coming into the face of the fiber. Snell's law cause it, causes it to bend towards the normal, assuming that the fiber has a higher index than the surrounding medium. And then when it gets to the interface on the barrel side of the fiber, it can partially transmit and partially reflect. Or if the incident angle is steep enough, it can totally internally reflect. So on this homework assignment that you just turned in, you had some experience calculating that critical angle. And so at that critical angle or at any steeper angle, and a steeper angle means more axial, more closely aligned to the fiber axis. So for rays that are propagating primarily along the fiber axis, they can be guided by total internal reflection. And so here's a path that's leaky, and some of the light leaks out on each path. And the full path for this one that's totally internally reflected isn't shown, but um, it can propagate without reflection losses. So this material has to have a higher index than the surrounding material in order for the light to be guided, in order for there to be total internal reflection. So I mentioned that in the 19, early 1900s, this was uh, glass pipes were used. Uh, for, with limited applications using this principle. And one of the problems with, with that is that this interface from a high index to low index was entirely dependent on what was touching the glass pipe. Right? If you touched it with your hand, your hand has oil on it. The oil has an index of refraction that's greater than that of air. And the little drops of oil or the little uh, surfaces where there's oil could allow some light to leak out and actually get absorbed in your finger for example. So depending on how you suspended this, if you buried this in the ground and it rained, the water would be a surrounding material that would disturb this interface. And so the way that's dealt with is an, a cladding layer is put on. It's, it's a coating, which is some dielectric, usually a glass, that has a lower index than the core. So the, we call the, the region which guides the light the core, and the surrounding region the cladding. And that cladding just protects this interface. No light propagates through the cladding, or at least no, no uh, lossless mode propagates through the cladding. And then if you've ever seen a fiber optic cable, you can buy these to connect your DVD player to your stereo, or you may have seen one if you have, well, a variety of places you may have seen them. You may have seen things that look a little bit like a headphone cable or something. It's thick with some rubber. That rubber is is not the cladding, it's actually a, a jacket that sits around the whole thing. The fiber itself can be a few hundred microns thick, total thing, including the cladding. So just for mechanical strength and rigidity, it's often put into a uh, rubberized fiber protector. So one of the critical
parameters is the angle, the maximum angle with which you can launch light into the face of the fiber and have it guided through the fiber. So we call that maximum angle the acceptance angle. And in your book, it's labeled as theta sub m, um, but it's also commonly called theta sub a, the acceptance angle. So I've used theta sub a in my notation. To diagram those out of the book, so it uses theta sub m. So what we've got here is the path of a ray at the maximum acceptance angle. It refracts due to Snell's law, and on the first reflection off of the barrel, the transmitted light is at 90 degrees. So at any angle beyond that, meaning any shallower incident angle here, the light will be totally internally reflected. So let's calculate what that angle is. And we can calculate it pretty easily inside of the material. Calculate this critical angle here for reflection at the barrel, but that's not the one that is typically useful for us. We're often dealing with problems of how to send the light into the fiber, so we want to know at what maximum angle at the face. So we can use a little geometry to relate this phi sub c, the critical angle at the barrel, to the acceptance angle on the face. Okay, so critical angle is found from Snell's law. Setting the transmitted angle to 90 degrees gives us this relationship for the critical angle, the arc sine of n2 over n1. n2 is the cladding, n1 is the core. So for example, from glass to air, we get a critical angle, I think, of about 53 degrees. We typically aren't going from glass to air. We're going from glass to a lower index glass. So that critical angle is usually much, um, much greater in a fiber. And so this angle right here, and I can draw this geometry out. We have this angle being the critical angle. This is a ray that strikes the barrel and then is reflected. And I want to call this angle here theta prime. And it's the angle of the transmitted light from the face relative to the fiber axis, or the normal of the face. And we'll use that to calculate theta sub a, the maximum acceptance angle of the fiber. OK, so theta prime is complementary with phi sub c. They sum to 90 degrees because they're opposite angles of a right triangle. And if we use phi, the critical angle is arc sine of n2 over n1. That means the arc sine of this angle is n2 over n1. We can write um, this side is n2, this side of the triangle is n1, and then the sine of phi sub c is n2 over n1. Right? And this leg right here has to have a length of n1 squared minus n2 squared. So now, using Snell's law across this interface, we're going to need to know the sine of theta prime. 
the sine of theta prime, I can read out from this, this diagram. It's n1 squared minus n2 squared square root over n2. Yeah, this is all glass right here. I can draw that. That's the glass fiber. This is air. And that's glass. So if we know. Yeah, thanks. We'll get to that. Let me get through this geometry. We'll do an example. We'll calculate how much loss there would be due to the multiple reflections. So if we know the arcs, if we know the sine of this angle, we can calculate the sine of this angle using Snell's law. So we can get sine theta a times n, I'll call it n naught, the index of the surrounding material, equals an n1 times sine theta prime. So that's for Snell's law going across the face of the fiber. And my expression for sine phi prime has a 1 over n1. So when I multiply that by n1, this right side is n1 squared minus n2 squared. And I can solve that for phi sub a or sine phi sub a, which is what I've done up there. So the acceptance angle depends on the index of refraction at the core, the cladding, and the surrounding material. The larger the acceptance angle, the more light this fiber can gather. So the acceptance angle um, is related to how much light this fiber can gather and guide along it. So there's a quantity called the numerical aperture, which is used with optics, not just fibers, that's related to the light gathering power of an optic. And for a fiber, it's defined as it's the left side of this equation, n naught sine theta a. The numerical aperture squared is directly proportional to the light gathering power of an optic. If you have an old camera, and your camera has a ring that lets you set the F number, the F number is the numerical aperture squared. So looking at this expression for the numerical aperture, I said it was defined as the left side of that equation, then it makes sense that you could also express it as the right side of the equation. And it's also clear that the acceptance angle can't be greater than 90 degrees, which means the numerical aperture can't be greater than n naught. And if you're operating in air or in a vacuum where n naught is 1, 
then the numerical aperture will be some number less than 1. So that's a parameter that's often given to describe a fiber. If you're going to buy a fiber from Dow Corning and you looked in their online catalog, they would have different models that had different numerical apertures. So let's calculate the acceptance angle and numerical aperture for a glass fiber in air. So glass fiber in air means what is the core made of? Glass. What is the cladding? It's air. And then and not is the surrounding material, and that's air as well. Okay, so let me uh, go ahead and erase the rest of the diagram, which would distract us, and just leave the result, which says if I know the acceptance angle, then I can determine the numerical aperture, and the acceptance angle is given right here. So I'll use these two relationships to do this problem. So first, sine theta a. I plug in my values. What is, well, remind me what material N1 represents? That's glass. So I'm going to use an index. I didn't explicitly write it, but I'm going to use 1.5 for the glass. And then N2 and N0 are both air. can work that out. That's a number greater than 1. Okay, I think it's like 1.1. Call it 1.1. So it's tempting to plug that in here and say the numerical aperture is 1.1. n0 is equal to 1. that correct, you think? Is there a problem with that? Yeah, the sign can't be more than one. Yeah, so the sign can't be more than one. So I said the sign of the acceptance angle is equal to 1.1, um, which is not physical. So what that means is this particular fiber has an acceptance angle of 90 degrees, or pi over 2. It means any light which hits the face, because it gets bent towards the normal, will actually be going at an angle less than the critical angle, or an angle, I guess, greater than the critical angle at the uh, interface. So any light that gets into the fiber will be guided in this particular fiber. So we'd say the acceptance angle then is pi over 2, or 90 degrees. So the sine is equal to 1, and not is equal to 1, and the numerical aperture is 1. So the numerical aperture can never be greater than the index of the material that it's in. Okay, another parameter of a fiber, which is useful for understanding a little bit about what the light's doing as it propagates along, is the skip distance. 
And that's the distance between successive reflections off the barrel for a ray. And so in this diagram, that's labeled as L sub s. And now the skip distance is going to depend on the angle of the input ray. If you launch a ray along the axis of the fiber, it's going to propagate straight through and not skip off the sides at all. It would have an infinite skip distance. So we usually defi define the skip distance or calculate it or express it for a marginal ray. That's one that is at just at the maximum acceptance angle. And the maximum acceptance angle will give you the sort of the most bouncing back and forth between the sides. And that gives you the smallest skip distance. Okay, so from this diagram, if this angle right here is theta prime, it's the same angle we had before as the transmitted angle of the light through the face of the fiber. So that's the angle there, it's also the angle there. And this fiber has a diameter d, then the skip distance is d cosine theta prime. And the cosine theta prime, we can work out from the diagram that I erased, but we can work that out in terms of n1 and n0, and in this case, in terms of the, the input angle, sine theta. And this term n0 sine theta in the denominator is the numerical aperture. So I can express the skip distance in terms of some of the other parameters that I've already defined, and in terms of the fiber diameter. Uh, it should be tangent, although in this case the difference between them is going to be insignificant. And why that's cosine? That should be tangent. And I may have made an. There may be an approximation. that cosine equals tangent in order to get, wait, that doesn't make sense. No, that doesn't make sense. Yeah, so that, that should clearly be tangent. OK, let me just assume that that's a typo. That's supposed to be tangent. I was trying to think whether or not I was making a, an approximation here in order to get that result. So let's calculate the skip distance for a fiber that has a 100 micron, uh, micrometer diameter. And then let's ask what the loss per reflection is for half of the power to be attenuated in 15 kilometers of fiber. Yeah? It, it, there's obviously an error on that slide. I'll, I'll fix it. I'll post it. And I will I'll get back to you next time. Um, 
believe this result is correct. Clearly, it should scale with the diameter. The greater the diameter, the longer it can propagate. Um, I believe that's correct. Let me use that result. So the diameter of the fiber is 100 microns. If the fiber is glass in air, this is the same fiber that we had before, the index of glass is 1.5, the numerical aperture I said was 1 from our last calculation. This term in square root works out to be 1.1. That makes the whole thing 110 microns, or 0.11 millimeters. So it's saying for this fiber, light coming in at the maximum acceptance angle will bounce back and forth nine times per millimeter. So to go 15 kilometers, that's, what is that, uh, over a million reflections off of the surface? So if the power loss per reflection let's call that A then 1 minus A is the power that's not lost after each reflection. Or another way of saying that is the reflection coefficient has a magnitude of 1 minus A. And so after some number of round trips, we want that to equal 0 0.5. We've had a problem like this before where we're trying to find out how many, I think it was how many panes of glass the light had to go through before it was attenuated. Here we know the number of reflections. We're trying to figure out A. Okay, so if we calculate the number of reflections as the uh, 15 kilometers divided by our minimum skip distance, it's about a million. If we plug that in for N, we solve for A. We get about 5 parts per billion, 5 times 10 to the minus 6, uh, 5 times 10 to the minus 9, sorry. Has nothing to do, no, no, that's not necessarily the case. We're calculating for a ray that's at the maximum acceptance angle. And the thinner the fi if the fiber were thinner, it would reflect more times off the surface. Now what we're assuming here is we're assuming that there's some power loss at the reflection. And this is the maximum power loss we can have 
and have the light propagate 15 kilometers without, uh, without losing more than half of its power. So clearly, for modern, fi modern data communication fibers, the power loss on reflection must be small, must be very small, in order for them to be possible. Um, and in fact, because it has total internal reflection, the power loss is really zero. There is no loss on reflection. So this is just meant to show that total internal reflection really is total. The power loss in modern fibers actually comes from absorption in the silica. So just bulk absorption propagating through the material, not from reflections off the sides. Wade? So if you have fiber which has, has to have radiuses of curvature short, you want LS to be a minimum. If you have fiber going over long distance, you want LS to be close to the maximum. So the question is, do you want LS to be a minimum or a maximum, or what? Does it depend on the application? We're calculating the minimum skip distance, which tells us the most number of times the light reflects, based on light coming in at the acceptance angle. Um, typically, what you'd want is you'd want the light launched along an axial mode, meaning launched at zero degrees, so it's not skipping off the... But if you have curvature of the fiber, would you want it skipping back and forth? If the curvature, if you have curvature of the fiber, then the light will reflect off of the wall. So if you had light that was propagating along the axis and was not skipping back and forth, when it gets to the outer edge, it will reflect. So, it's no. Okay. That makes sense. I will go back and check that. Okay. Now in practice. If you want propagation through long fiber, you actually you want the diameter of the fiber to be very small, um, so that there's only a single mode that can propagate. And we'll see what, what I mean by modes right here. Um, fibers come in different types. One of the primary parameters that distinguishes fiber into different types is whether it's single-mode fiber or multi-mode fiber. So let's define what we mean by modes and allowed modes. So we're not going to be very specific about what a mode is. We can't do that with the ray picture because a mode is a property of wave propagation. And we're not dealing with the uh, wave picture of light propagating. But we have light bouncing back and forth. And I'm going to do this, the book works this out as well, in a slab waveguide that has rectilinear geometry. Because the math is a little easier than doing it in cylindrical coordinates, which is what you have in a fiber. The principle is the same. If you have light bouncing back and forth between the two interfaces, then what you actually have inside of the fiber or inside of this waveguide is the superposition of all the different rays at any given point, or all, all the different wave fronts at any given point. And so over here at point C, for example, if we had a ray that was propagating along this path, 
then at point A, it would, its wavefront would be perpendicular to that ray and would extend throughout this, this waveguide. And then when the ray reflects at A and then reflects at B and then comes up to point C, it will have a wavefront that's also in the same direction as that at point A. And those two wavefronts, if they add up constructively, produce what we call a, a mode of propagation. So there are certain angles for the light bouncing back and forth where all the different internal reflections add up constructively and produce what appears to be a, uh, a large amplitude wave propagating along the fiber. And so the condition that allows the wavefront from the ray at point A and the wavefront of the ray at point C to be in phase is that the phase acquired propagating along AB and along BC, so the additional phase acquired going from A to C, has to be some integer multiple of 2 pi. And that neglects any phase shift from the interfaces. So I'll just mention that. But so we can write it as K times AB plus BC. So AB plus BC is the additional path from A to C. We multiply that by K and we get a phase. It has to be some integer multiple of 2 pi. Okay, so let's see what that says about m, the integer multiple. So if we want to find the maximum number of modes, each mode has a different value of m. Right? A mode with a value of m equals 0 says that the path length from a to c has to be 0. And that's a ray that's propagating straight along the middle. A mode with m equals 1 is where this distance equals 1 wavelength. m equals 2, this distance is 2 wavelengths. So they correspond to different angles of the light propagating through the fiber. If we solve for m, and we write k as 2 pi n over lambda, we can get an expression for m. 2n d cosine the critical angle over lambda. So this critical angle is, if we're calculating the maximum number of modes, the largest mode number will occur at the critical angle, where the light is bouncing back and forth at as steep an angle as possible. And from this diagram here, this path length from A to B to C is the same as the path length from the image of point A. It's reflected on the bottom surface here. And so from this point here to C, that distance is the same as from A to B to C. So that distance is delta L. The distance from A to this image of A is 2D, twice the diameter of the fiber. And this is a 90 degree angle. So delta L here is 2D times cosine of phi. And we evaluate this for phi critical. And we said we needed k delta L to be some integer multiple of m. 
some integer multiple of 2 pi, that integer multiple we call m. So plugging in k is equal to 2 pi times the index of the core over the wavelength. The L is 2d cosine phi c. That's equal to 2 pi m. The two pi's cancel out, and we get an expression for m. That's the largest mode number, because this is the largest that cosine phi is the largest value of cosine phi we can have in a propagating mode. So we add one to that. If we want to express the number of modes that can propagate, we would start counting with m equals 0. I said that was the axial mode, light that propagates along the axis. So if I want m to represent the number of modes, I have to take that expression and I have to add one for the m equals 0 mode. And so this is my expression for the total number of modes that are allowed in a slab waveguide. And you get a similar expression in a fiber. The math is a little bit more uh, tricky. And this is just based on looking at how the rays propagate through. Each ray can have one of two different polarization states. Right? It can be made up of one of two orthogonal polarization states. So there's actually twice as many modes that can propagate as what we derived here. You can have one mode for each polarization state. Okay, so in fibers, this relationship for the maximum number of modes takes on a slightly different form. Compare it to what we had in the slab waveguide. We had an expression that depended on numerical aperture, the diameter, and the wavelength. And we still have an expression that depends on numerical aperture, the diameter, and the wavelength. So this is the maximum number of modes that can propagate in a fiber. And we'll see in a minute what effect having more than one mode in the fiber has on light going in and propagating through the fiber. For certain applications, it doesn't matter. If you're building a bundle of fibers you're going to stick down someone's throat, light coming in and hitting a fiber on one, one face will produce an identical image on the other face. So using multimode fibers is not a problem. For communications, you send a really short pulse into a fiber and it propagates straight through that fiber, it gets through faster than if it's bouncing around inside, traveling a greater distance. So you send in one pulse. At the output, you might get two that are shifted in time. Or M, however many modes you have, you get that many pulses at the output. So that's obviously a bad thing if you're trying to maintain some um, integrity of your data going through the fiber. So in many applications, what you want is only a single mode to be allowed to propagate. So you can just find the constraint on that by setting the maximum number of modes equal to 1 and solving for the required diameter of the fiber. And so solving, we often express this in terms of the diameter relative to the wavelength. And it's, it's given by this expression, 2 over pi times the numerical aperture. And that comes directly from this expression we had here, derived using the ray picture. And it turns out to be about 2.4 when you get an exact value 
I'm using the wave picture to calculate this. So a small diameter fiber is necessary for single mode operations. The larger the diameter, there are more, the more modes can bounce around inside the fiber. So a small diameter fiber is harder to get light into because you're shining light onto a smaller target. So you wouldn't want that for medical imaging where you're sticking fibers down someone's throat and maybe sending white light through the fibers, reflecting off of their gallbladder, whatever, stomach. Stomach is what you get to when you stick something down someone's throat, um, and coming back. You'd want multi big multimode fibers that the light comes into very easily. But if you're doing long distance telecommunication or a lot of uh, precision work in a laboratory, you'd want small diameter fibers for single mode operation. And then you'd have to put much more care into aligning your laser or your light source to those fibers. So let's calculate how big of a diameter is necessary for a fiber to be single mode. We'll use another glass fiber, but this time we'll look at a more realistic case where there's a cladding around it of low index glass and illumination at 1550 nanometers. We'll see why 1550 in a minute. Okay, so we have an expression it says d over lambda has to be less than or equal to 2 over um, pi times the numerical aperture. And so we're going to need to calculate the numerical aperture of this fiber. And that looked like n naught sine theta acceptance or square root of n1 squared minus n2 squared. So I will plug in this expression for Na. And I will solve for D. So a nanometer is 10 to the minus 9 meters. In this case, N1 is the core. That's the higher index material. N2 is the cladding. And when I evaluate this, I get that D has got to be less than about 1.83 microns. Well, Wait. Quick questions. Uh, N1 is, are we always assuming that N1 is the core and N2 is the body? Yeah. Okay, and then is N2 usually going to be less than N1? It has to be less or you don't have a fiber. You don't have a, a fiber that can guide light. So just looking at this, this expression, numerical aperture of a fiber is a measure of its light gathering power. But we saw for glass fiber and air, it was 1. Typically, the values for the numerical aperture of a fiber will be somewhere between about 0.2 and, and 1. So it's a number that's on the order of unity as are these other terms. So basically, a rule of thumb is the diameter needs to be about the size of a wavelength. So if you know what wavelength you're dealing with, you know about the approximate size of the fiber that you're going to be dealing with uh, if you want to have a single mode fiber. OK, so that's a little bit about how the light 
propagates through the fiber and reflect and uh, a look at some of the effects of the light reflecting off the sides, the loss in the fiber primarily comes from absorption in the fused silica. So the way a fiber is made is you take a boule of glass, so uh, a cylinder of fused silica, and then you surround it with the cladding material. So you'd have a cylinder of the lower index glass or plastic around it. Oftentimes you can get that just by um, putting it in some sort of hot bath with uh, some, some, uh, some chemicals that can seep in, that can diffuse into the outer wall and change the index of refraction of the outside. Once you have this large boule, you heat it up, and you grab a piece of the bottom, and you just pull. You just stretch it out. And it just, it's, it's a lot like uh, eating a cheese pizza. Right? You get the big thing of cheese turning into a little fiber, and if you pull it uh, fast enough, you can get that fiber very thin, and it retains the same transverse profile as the boule you started with. So you start with glass, and in the mid-1900s, the loss in glass was, was quite large. I think if you made a fiber, there would have been a few hundred decibels per kilometer of loss. Um, currently, there's about 0.2 decibels per kilometer to compare what, what the loss was then to what it was now. And it, it was uh, Dr. Charles Cow who realized, theoretically, that you should be able to get most of that loss out of the glass if you purified the glass well. It really wasn't under, the, the mechanisms of loss really weren't that well understood because they weren't really that important for a lot of the things that were being done. Right? You make a window that's a centimeter thick of glass, you don't really care whether it's a part per million or a part per billion of loss. Um, but for these long-distance fibers, this was a, a critical parameter. And then it was 1970 when this was first experimentally demonstrated, and that really ushered in the age of modern telecommunications. So if you look at a curve that shows the loss in glass fiber, these red lines show that loss. The dotted one up here is what was available in the late 1980s. The lower one, this is uh, early 2000s. You can see the loss at all wavelengths has been improved. Manufacturing techniques have improved. Um, I think I'll mention this a couple slides from now, but at low frequencies, there's um, electronic absorption in the uh, atoms that make up the glass. And at high frequencies, there's molecular absorption from the molecules. Um, absorbing light and their bonds rotating and stretching. And in between, you have these peaks of absorption. I think the peak, peak right here comes from the OH bond vibration. Those are inherent in the material. So you can manipulate the material to try to reduce the number of those free bonds. Um, but basically you have this sort of fundamental limit right here. So as the impurities were removed and a lot of the things that would produce absorption were removed, you started to uncover some of the inherent structure of the absorption spectrum of glass. There were four windows that were sort of investigated in turn. The first one is down here at about 850 nanometers. It's a convenient wavelength to use because there were low-cost LEDs available. So that's 
That's infrared, near infrared. There were low-cost LEDs available that could be used as light sources at that wavelength, and it was sort of in a little valley between these two absorption peaks. Um, the depth to which that could go, or the, the inherent loss, was not that good there. So later on, the second window up here at about 1.3 nanometers was explored. And then nowadays, 1.55 nanometers is the most common wavelength used for fiber telecommunications. So the, 800, the 850 nanometer window was, was interesting because of the availability of those, availability of those cheap LEDs um, and the loss minned out, maxed out. The lowest loss that could be achieved just due to the inherent property of the fiber was about 2 dB per kilometer. You compare that to what was available at 1310 nanometers. Thir uh, 1.3 microns was a wavelength where the loss was pretty much the, uh, the theoretical limit of glass, 0.5 dB per kilometers. That's where the modern the loss in modern fibers uh, is as well. And there were indium gallium arsenide phosphide lasers. These are laser diodes that could be used to, to drive this. Um, so this wavelength corresponded to a point where there was low loss and available light sources. And so that was investigated. And if anybody remembers in the 80s when Sprint had all their commercials with a pin dropping and they had built this fiber optic network, their fiber optic network used 1310 nanometer light. So the initial rollout of uh, telecommunications using glass fibers used this particular window, this second window. And as far as the, the glass fiber and the laser sources are that are available, um, this was basically ideal. And this would probably still be used today as the primary wavelength region for telecommunications if it weren't for the invention of erbium-doped fiber amplifiers, EDFAs. An erbium-doped fiber amplifier is basically a laser that's integrated into a fiber. Take a glass fiber, you dope in erbium, it's a rare earth element, and you can pump it with a laser diode. So you send light of about uh, 980 nanometers into the fiber along with your signal, along with whatever other light you're sending into the fiber, and your signal light gets amplified in the fiber. So instead of having loss in this fiber, you have gain. And what that lets you do is, if you're trying to build a transcontinental or, or transatlantic fiber to communicate over great distances, um, using the 1310 nanometer window, every 40 kilometers or so, you had to have electronics that would read out a signal. Uh, usually these are digital signals, so it would clean it up and reproduce the digital waveform and then launch it into a new fiber. So as the signal, the noise degraded to the point where it's barely detectable. You had to detect it, reproduce it, and then transmit it. Um, with these EDFAs, you didn't need to do that. Instead of these optical electronic repeaters, you just put an EDFA in, and it would just directly amplify the signal. And so it made it much more economical uh, to transmit over great distances. So the whole fiber would be the EDFA? No. No, just portion. So you'd still have the idea of like a signal of transmission and then a repeater, but the repeater would be all optical. So you just you just fuse them together. Yeah. 
OK, so one of the reasons that 1550 nanometers uh, is used, that's one of the reasons. Another reason is that um, if there are impurities in the silicon, uh, primarily, one of the primary loss mechanisms is through Rayleigh scattering. So you have an object that uh, scatters the light. And Rayleigh scattering is inversely proportional to the wavelength to the fourth power. That's why the sky is blue. Right? The blue light scatters more than the red light. So light going through the atmosphere scatters. The blue light scatters, comes down. You observe it as blue. Well, same thing in the fiber. The redder the light, or the, the, hot, the longer the wavelength, the less the Rayleigh scattering. So if you look at 1550 nanometers, which is almost twice the wavelength of 850, the amount of scattering is almost 1 16th. It's almost it's the ratio of these two wavelengths to the minus 4. So it's about uh, 14 times smaller when you work out the numbers. So going further into the infrared is good for reducing Rayleigh scattering. Um, if you go too far, then the absorption due to the uh, photons exciting rotational vibrational modes of the, uh, of the silica becomes the dominant loss mechanism. OK, so we're using this term dB per kilometer to describe loss. Um, prior to this point, we've talked about loss in terms of uh, fractional loss, parts per billion, something like that. Um, so let's relate those things. So if you have intensity that you measure at different points as light propagates through some material, Beer's law, I think is a very appropriate law to introduce right after spring break, is uh, related to the incident intensity times some exponential decay. So you have some exponential decay as light goes through an absorbing material. And this decay constant, alpha, tells you how much attenuation there is. So if alpha equals 0, right, then the, this exponential decay doesn't exist. And the intensity will always be the incident intensity. But the greater alpha is, the faster this will decay away. So in spectroscopy, alpha is often measured as a value per centimeter. This is the most common units. You see it in, uh, you talk about the absorption of a gas. Value per centimeter, you multiply it by how many centimeters of the gas you go through. You get the argument of that exponent. But in telecommunications, where the loss is so low, it's more useful to talk about dB per kilometer. Right, so. A dB is a, is a logarithmic value. And dB, you probably know this from sound waves that you learned about in physics 50 or in uh, mechanics, is 10 times the log of a ratio. So we have 10 times the log of the ratio of the incident power relative to that measured at some length L. And if the the power after propagating through the material is less than it started out. This ratio will be greater than 1. It will produce a value that's positive. If I invert this ratio, it becomes smaller than 1 and produces a value that's negative. So because of the way I've defined the absorption coefficient as being a positive number, right, because it's e to the minus alpha L. So alpha L should be positive if there's absorption. So I have to express this ratio either invert the ratio or explicitly put a minus sign out there to account for the sign. So the absorption 
It's just the ratio of the power measured at two different points, the log of that times 10. And that gives me an absorption in dB. If I divide that by the length between these two points, if I measure the intensity at the input and one kilometer later, then this will give me the absorption in a one kilometer length. If I measure it 10 kilometers later, I have to divide that total absorption by 10 to get the absorption per kilometer. So a reminder that a 3 dB reduction in power corresponds to a decrease in power of 50%. If you're from an electronics background, you may say, no, that's 6 dB. But in our definition here, it's a 3 dB reduction in power corresponds to a decrease of power by 50%. A reduction of 10 dB is a reduction of power of 90%. So 0.2 dB per kilometer means that in order for the power to drop by 50%, how far do you need to go? It's 15 kilometers. So that example we did about um, how much the loss needs to be per reflection was for 15 kilometer fiber. So that's that's about um, the distance you have to go in a fiber for the internal loss to reduce the power to about 50%. Now, there's other things that can produce loss, um, primarily due to mishandling of the fiber. Gregory? Okay, it depends on how much light you send in. And it depends on. So I can tell you this. The typical telecommunication system has repeaters about every 100 kilometers. So if 15 kilometers is the distance to half the power, then what that, that's like a 1 half to the sixth. So that's a fraction of a percent, part per thousand, something like that. Five parts per thousand, something like that. Um, there's no reason that if you were doing it with a, uh, if you're doing it in a controlled laboratory where you only need to do it once, you couldn't do much better than that. But in a commercial environment where, um, where you're limited by, you know, the ability of the technicians who installed the things, and not the PhDs who are setting it up and such, I guess that that would be a reasonable limit. Okay, so some of the external things that can produce loss are bending. You can see from this picture why bending might produce loss. You bend a fiber too sharply, the light, which is being guided in some mode, could reach an interface that's not at the angle described by a, a straight fiber. And at such an interface might be below the critical angle and leak out. So typically, a fiber will have specification, the, the data sheet that comes with the fiber will have a specification for the minimum bending radius. And so that gives you some constraint on how tightly you can bend it. Oftentimes the, the plastic jacket that's put around a fiber will be designed to mechanically prevent it from bending, easily bending sharper than that. Okay, so you don't kink fibers, you don't fold them up. You don't necessarily have to lay them straight either. Um, this Typical uh, bending losses become significant when the radius is a few inches or a few, a few centimeters, if you prefer metric. Um, anything else which can disturb the surface? Here's a micro defect, a little 
crack or bump or pit can have the same effect. It can change the, uh, the local angle of incidence of a beam, either at that point or if it reflects off that point, and that can produce loss. So the, the, the interfaces need to be smooth, and they need to, the bending needs to be, needs to be minimal. Okay, so I mentioned that there's single-mode fibers, there's multi-mode fibers, and I alluded to the fact that there's something called multi-mode distortion, which causes a single pulse sent into a multi-mode fiber to come out distorted. So let's look a little bit at that now. Um, it's easy to understand what's going on in terms of square wave pulses, which happens to be the uh, you know, what's used in digital communication, so it's very appropriate to analyze the fiber in that sense, but it's also relevant in terms of analog signals sent in as well. Um, but if we send in a square wave pulse, and we imagine that that is, for example, a plot of the uh, power as a function of time of light that's going into the fiber, if there is, as shown, two possible rays at which that pulse can propagate through, those rays will have different path lengths. The one that goes straight through obviously travels a shorter path than the one that bounces back and forth. There may be many modes that are somewhere between these two. These are the two extremes, one along the, the uh, maximum acceptance angle and one directly through. And as a result, they take different lengths of time to get through. You get two pulses out or, or a whole series of pulses. Okay, so the path length difference between these two pulses, if I draw these triangles here that correspond to uh, the path from on-axis to the first reflection, from the first, ax from the first reflection back to on-axis to the second reflection. If each one of these triangles has a hypotenuse of L prime and a base of L, then the axial mode travels a distance L, and the off-axis mode travels a distance L prime in order to get through this first chunk of fiber. In every chunk of fiber, the same relationship holds. So the difference in path length that these two pulses have traveled is just the difference in length between the hypotenuse and the base of this triangle times the number of triangles we have. The number of triangles we have we could solve from the skip distance. Or I could just say, if this is the fractional additional path length per chunk of fiber, and the fiber is the length L, then when I multiply that by L, I get the, the approximate value for the additional path length that one pulse travels. And now the critical angle is described by this angle here between the normal to the barrel and the hypotenuse of that triangle. So the sine of that critical angle is L over L prime. And by definition, the sine of the critical angle is n2 over n1. So evidently, L over L prime equals n2 over n1. So I can just solve, I can write all the L primes in terms of n1 over n1 times L over n2. And I can convert this expression that's in terms of L's and L primes to this one in terms of N's, N1's, and N2's. 
And this is an expression for the path length difference that the pulse has, depending on which path it propagates through the fibrin. I can relate that to a time. The time difference between these two pulses is just this path length divided by the speed of propagation. So I'm just going to divide it by v. And v is c over n1, right, the, the phase velocity in material n1. So I can write, I can write this, uh, this temporal delay between the pulses in terms of the properties of the fiber. Um, and that tells me the maximum speed at which I can repeat pulses. Right. As soon as I send a pulse, I have to let every one of its sort of echoes get through the other end before my next pulse. Right, so that limits the maximum speed of the fiber. Mark? What is your L on the bottom? This is the temporal pulse spread per unit length. Oh, okay. So I just took out the L. And so this is a property of the fiber, um, the geometry of the fiber, and this one includes the, the physical length. So different ways of expressing it. Okay, so let's do an example. Let's determine the bandwidth of a digital signal. So bandwidth, we'll talk about bits per second. They can propagate through a meter of multimode fiber. And here's some parameters for a fiber. N1 equals 1.5. The cladding is 1.45. And then see what the bandwidth is. They can propagate through 3,000 kilometers of fiber. And so we're dealing with a situation like this where we have um, digital signals propagating through. So we have light is a sinusoidal oscillation, and its amplitude has some digital profile to it. Right? So we're calling this a bit. So the temporal delay through one meter of fiber, I can evaluate directly from this expression. I plug in 1.5 and 1.45, one meter. And for the velocity, I plug in C over 1.5. That evaluates to 1.72 times 10 to the t minus 10 seconds. So successive bits must be at least this far apart. Right, that's uh, 172 picoseconds is the time delay between successive bits. And we can invert that to get the number of bits per second instead of seconds per bit. So inverting that gives us 5.8 gigabits per second through the fiber. Uh, I'll point out that in your book, it does examples with similar, similar types of calculations, and it uses a different uh, criteria. It says that every bit needs to be at least one and a half times this length. It's just an arbitrary criteria, whereas I'm just choosing one. So the results in the equations that they the equations that they give as sort of a rule of thumb for the, the speed differs a little bit than, than that which I'm calculating here. And it's because it's an arbitrary constraint that the bits need to be separated by some, some parameter that's on the order of, of unity of the uh, propagation delay. OK, so 5.8 gigabits per second for a 1 meter fiber. In a 3,000 kilometer fiber, the delay is increased by 3,000. So the speed is 3,000. Uh, 3,000 kilometers, that's increased by 3 million. The delay is increased by 3 million. The speed is decreased by 3 million. And I think I 
neglected this. It should be 1.9 kilobits per second because I think I neglected the fact that this was in meters and this was in kilometers. When I did this, I just divided by 3,000, it looks like, not 3 million. So that should be 1.9 kilobits per second. So you can take a multimode fiber, which is nice. It's easy to couple light into and out of. And you can connect your stereo to your amplifier. You can connect one computer to another and get very good throughput. But you can't make a very good intercontinental communication system based out of multimode fiber. So the TOSLink cable, if you connect your DVD player to your uh, receiver, is a multimode fiber. It has a core that's on the order of 100 microns, probably 300 microns in diameter. So you can see it with your naked eye. You can see the light coming out of it. Um, and it provides plenty of bandwidth for audio or video. So you're dividing the 5.9 by 3 million? Yeah. 5.8? So uh, why aren't you going to have a unit of gigabits per second per meter? If you, know the, if you know the distance. So this is the delay for one meter of fiber. If you increase the number of meters, so this. OK, so you're multiplying I've already a million times 1.72. Yes. Oh, OK. And then inverting, which is the same as taking this value and dividing it by 3 million. OK, so actual long distance fiber for communication is single mode to avoid this problem. But even in single mode fiber, there is dispersion. There is distortion that comes from the fact that the light doesn't all travel through the fiber at the same rate. But in a single mode fiber, the light is all going along the same path. So it's not due to the physical path length like, like we have in multimode fiber. Um, it's due to the fact that a short pulse in time Due to the Fourier transform of that pulse, that corresponds to a, a broad spectrum in frequency. So it takes. So when you take a, a laser source and you chop it like this into a pulse, you're actually spreading out the wavelength. It takes many different wavelengths centered around whatever your, your laser wavelength is to construct that pulse. And the different wavelengths propagate at different speeds through the fiber due to the material dispersion. So material dispersion means the index of refraction is a function of wavelength. So here's the index of refraction for fused silica as a function of wavelength. The numbers, the specific numbers aren't really relevant here, but the fact that it's not constant is. Okay, so dispersion is dn d lambda. It can be written as, there's a number of ways to write it, dn d omega, uh, d omega dk. So if a pulse has a width of delta t in time, so that's the width of your bit, then the bandwidth required to produce that pulse is about 1 over, one over delta omega. You saw that. That was a rule of thumb from our uh, Fourier analysis and looking at the Heisenberg uncertainty relationship. So that's the bandwidth and frequency. The time required to traverse the fiber, the time is just the length of the fiber divided by the speed speed of light in the fiber, but that's a function of omega. It's a function of frequency because the index of refraction is a function of wavelength and frequency. The 
frequency, the, the group velocity of light is defined as d omega dk. So plug that in over there. And we get that the time delay between two frequencies is the amount of dispersion you have, which is essentially this. The amount of delay you have is a function of frequency times the separation of frequencies of the signals that make up your, or the components that make up your signal. So we have an expression here for the time delay. We can plug in for tau this original expression for L over Vg. And then we can take all the derivatives. We have sort of nested derivatives, because we have L over Vg. Vg is d omega dk. We're taking the derivative of that with respect to omega. So we have to go through the chain rule a few times. But when we do that, we can write the time delay in terms of the spread and wavelengths that we have. The length of the fiber, dn d lambda squared. So that's the, the curvature of that index of refraction curve that I showed before and lambda nc. So we have this expression for the time delay. Um, these parameters here we can write as functions of the fiber at a particular wavelength. And we call that a figure of merit of the fiber. It's given by m, typically written as m for a figure of merit. So the figure of merit is lambda over c d squared n over d lambda squared. You can look that up. And here it is for a uh, few silica fiber. You can see m has a minimum at a little less than 1.3 microns, which is why I said if it weren't for the erbium doped fiber amplifiers, 1.3 microns would be an ideal wavelength for optical communications. The loss is low, and the dispersion is low. So we can write the delay in terms of this figure of merit, and then writing the, uh, if I calculated that, we can relate delta lambda spread in wavelength to the width of the pulse. I thought I had it on the slides, and I didn't, and I'm not going to take the time to drive it uh, right now. I might leave that for the homework. But um, we can write the time delay in terms of the pulse width. The narrower the pulse, the broader the spectrum that makes it up, and the greater the time delay will between the different components of that spectrum. So it's an inverse relationship. And so we can do an example. Um, at 1550 nanometers, we can calculate the maximum bandwidth, again, of this 3,000 kilometer fiber. So at 1550 nanometers, from the graph on the previous slide, we could read off the figure of merit as minus 25. It's in units of picoseconds per nanometer per kilometer. So plug that in for m, plug in our fiber length, our wavelength, and this is the time delay between the, the different components of our pulse. This is the width of that pulse. So if we imagine that that time delay can't, or the pulse width, if we set that equal to the time delay, then what it's saying is um, the 
the pulse repetition rate can be no greater than the time delay. Let me put it that way. The pulse repetition rate can't be greater than the width of the pulse. So if I set delta t equal to big delta t equal to little delta t, that's the minimum time length for my bits. Mark? How do you distinguish between two bits if they're overlapping a little bit still? Like if uh, the forward half, like below the forward half max or something? Um, we'll see there's a technique called wavelength division multiplexing, which lets you take um, multiple information streams and encode them on different wavelength regions and then overlap them in the fiber. But those wavelength regions need to be far enough separated that the spread in wavelength for each, each stream is still separated. So we'll solve this for, we'll bring this delta t to the other side. We'll let it equal the other delta t. We'll solve for that value. Take the square root of both sides. And we get about 10 picoseconds, or a bit rate of about 100 gigabits per second. So that's about um, the material limited bit rate through fiber. Okay, so we'll pick up here next time and finish off chapter 10. So capital delta T is the width of the pulse. Lower is delta tau is the 